Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. This is Kim with Black Free Thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself again. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. Yes, we are Black Free Thinkers, but not the Kanye and Candace Owens kind. So I just want to make sure I gave you all that little reminder there. Today, we would like to welcome back to the show Dr. Christopher Cameron. He just authored a book, and I'll read the notes as I have them written here. Please join us as we welcome Dr. Christopher Cameron back to the show. We will discuss his new book, Black Free Thinkers, A History of African-American Secularism, Critical Insurgency. And you can purchase his book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, as well as Northwestern University's NU Press and other venues. And I embedded the links into the show notes. So if you go over, you can click on the link. Let's please, you know, buy this book and congratulate him and support him in this very important work that needs to be discussed. And what's so interesting is the first time that I interviewed Dr. Cameron, he talked about this book, about writing this book, and how he was surprised that no one had written it already. So here we go, you know, several years later, and now we have the book. I'm so proud that, you know, I'm proud of the fact that, you know, I was, you know, one of the places where he announced the forthcoming book, and he's here, and we just adore him, and we appreciate his work. And so without further ado, I am going to let Dr. Christopher Cameron tell us who he is, because I didn't want to read a biography. No one can tell your story better than you can. So, Dr. Cameron, welcome, and thank you. Yes, thank you again for uh, having me. Uh, as far as uh, my bio, I'm an associate professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Um, I am a non-believer going on uh, ten, about 10 years now. I think I sort of slowly started converting around 2008 and then finished that up around 2009, 2010, um, I'm a scholar of uh, African-American religious and intellectual history of, of slavery and abolitionism. I've written um, a book on black abolitionists in Massachusetts, um, and this is my second monograph, Black Freethinkers, A History of African-American Secularism, exploring sort of the long arc of um, black freethought and black religious skepticism from the early 19th century up through the civil rights era. So uh, thank you again for having me. Yes, sir, and thank you for being with us again. And there's so much to go over. You know, I had a chance to kind of briefly go through the book because I got the Kindle version, and I was just looking. So we're going to go for it. So I'm telling you I'm just going to be throwing some balls out there, be ready to catch them, because it's so much that I want to go over in time. It's so limited. And plus, I also know that you're touring, and and you're talking about the book, so I don't want to take everything away from everyone. I want people to get the opportunity to question you and to read the book and fully enjoy it. Now, first things first, we got to talk about my guy. I love this guy, Hubert Henry Harrison, also known as the Black Socrates. Now, tell us what you discovered about Hubert Henry Harrison. Well, Hubert Henry Harrison um was you know we have we have a biography of him exploring his life and thought in depth, but one of the things that you know I found is 
Harrison, while his own sort of story and his kind of genius was singular, right, known as the Black Socrates, Mm -hmm. the sort of foremost uh, black public speaker in Harlem in the early 20th century, he's actually part of a large wave of Caribbean immigrants um, that came from places like St. Croix and Jamaica and Barbados um, and and other areas in, in the British Caribbean especially, uh, and, and many of these individuals had um, been exposed to socialism, communism, free thought, and secularism in their home countries, or if they did grow up religious when they came here, they were very sort of shocked by um, uh, by racism and things like that that they encountered um, and would end up becoming free thinkers in short order. Now, Harrison, of course, does kind of stand out among all of these individuals, especially for um, the official post that he had in the communist, in the Socialist Party, sorry, uh, where he was basically sort of the main individual in the early 19-teens that the socialists employed to help sort of bring in more uh, African-Americans uh, to communist or to socialism, um, and then later on to uh, communism. Now, additionally, Harrison basically saw himself as a free thought evangelist, right? And this is one of the key sort of transitions in um, the ideology of free thought and in the practice of Black free thought that you see in the early 20th century, right? In the 19th century, we have mm-hmm. a number of free thinkers that were themselves skeptics, but weren't necessarily trying to convince a lot of other people to come into the fold, right? They, they were skeptics for uh, various reasons, most having to do with slavery and um, pro-slavery religion and things like that. But in the early 20th century, you start to get figures like uh, Hubert Harrison, uh, Richard B. Moore, who was another um, Caribbean immigrant, um, And these are people who are not only – they're not happy with just being sort of uh, skeptical themselves or uh, secular themselves, but they actually think, like folks like Robert Ingersoll, that it's so important that they need to spread this um, to other people, right? Harrison wrote, it should seem that Negroes of all Americans would be in the free thought fold since we've suffered more than any other class of people – from the dubious blessings of Christianity. And he would use step ladders and milk crates all throughout New York City to sort of spread the message of um, secularism, secular humanism, as well as to teach on other topics like history, politics, and culture. Excellent, excellent. That is wonderful. And, you know, I plan on having Carol Boyce Davies on the show to talk a little bit more about Hubert Henry Harrison and Marcus Garvey and just spill some mm-hmm. tea because I met her in Brazil uh, a couple of months ago. I was in Brazil and she was there. And so she was talking about that. So that's going to be upcoming. You know, talk a little bit more about that. But since we're talking about people coming from that particular region of the world, I was looking through your book. I didn't see anything about Claudia Jones. Would you like to talk a little bit about her? You know, I I don't know much about Claudia Jones's religious perspective. Um, so I, I know that you know she was a pioneering female communist thinker, but I didn't 
come across much about her sort of religion or irreligion. I had the same thing um, uh, with another uh, Angela Davis, right, who also didn't really write too, too much about her religion. Um, Now, it may just be that I didn't search far and wide enough. Um, Some of the individuals I do discuss in the book are from a little bit of an earlier period. So my focus on the intersections of socialism and communism um, was really more on the 1920s and the early 1930s. And Jones sort of emerges, I think, more in the kind of World War II era. So in the 1920s, some figures that um, were really important were Grace P. Campbell, um, Elizabeth Hendrickson, who uh, was sort of known as like a female Hubert Henry Harrison, right? She was very well known, uh, Elizabeth Hendrickson, yeah. for being uh, a prominent kind of stepladder orator and, and sort of public speaker in sort of non-traditional venues, right? Just sort of out in the open. So them as well as uh, Louise Thompson Patterson. Those are some of the uh, few women that um, that I do focus on. And one of the things that we see, um, this is in my uh, third chapter on socialism and communism, is that um, these black communist secular women uh, really provided a foundation uh, for black feminist thought, right? They were some of the earliest, mm-hmm. especially Louise Thompson Patterson. Louise Thompson Patterson was really one of the earliest people uh, to articulate a theory of intersectionality whereby we have to kind of consider the confluences of gender, race, and class. Now, this is something that would become much more prominent in black feminist thought during the 1970s, but we start to see the origins uh, among black communist um, secular women during the 1920s and the early 1930s. so, yeah, I, I, I should have done a little bit more digging on Jones um, just to see what exactly her religious or, or non-religious uh, beliefs were. But additionally, she sort of was kind of outside of the time period that I was examining in the chapter. <clears throat> oh, very good. But you that was a great segue because I'm happy that you did focus on and, 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 and highlight black women that were part of this movement too often black women are left out of the equation left out of the conversation and it's important that people understand that there were black women out there like nella parsons i mean sorry nella larson and lucy parsons and just a host of other people that were out there spreading you know the message out there and so what's interesting is and you know i said this on my last show I was talking about a lot of the black free thinkers and, and humanists and, you know, atheists and agnostics of the day and how with many of them there was a common thread. It's like a little kindred spirit there in regards to Marxism, black Marxism, um, you know, socialism, in some cases communism. So in your book I noticed that you brought up Hammer and Hoe. Do you mind explaining to us, um, you know, the significance of that particular book and the information that you found? Well, in many ways, Hammer and Ho kind of contrasts with the story that I tell in, in the third chapter of my book in that Robin D.G. Kelly shows that for um, many, if not most, black communists in the rural South, their um, political ideology wasn't necessarily incompatible with Christianity, 
right? So just generally speaking, the Comintern or the Communist International put out a directive in 1924 stating pretty explicitly that they expect communists to also be atheists, right? That that's the sort of default religious or theological positions for people who adhere to communism. Um, but in practice, they modified that in the American South and didn't, didn't necessarily like deride um, black folks' adherence to Christianity as much as they did for, say, whites or blacks in northern cities like Chicago or Harlem. So I think in many ways what I discuss in my socialism and communism chapter in Black Freethinkers provides something of a contrast to, to Hammer and Ho in showing uh, the very clear links for a number of black intellectuals and radical political activists between their socialism, their communism, and their religious skepticism. That in the North, people like um, Richard Wright and Hubert Harrison and Louise Thompson Patterson and Du Bois and others, they pretty much towed the party line when it came to religion, right? And indeed, one of the things mm -hmm. that I argue is that the socialist and communist parties were probably attractive to many of these um, black freethinkers because their, their political philosophies were anti-religious as well, right? And so I think you have this sort of dialectic going on where some folks who are maybe politically radical then become religiously radical, others who maybe start out as secular then be, you know, embrace political radicalism because it also comes along with the secularism that is also or already appealing to them. Um, so I think we see very clear links um, among black political thinkers in the interwar era and in the era of the Great Depression between their free thought and between their political radicalism. And um, in addition to speaking to works like Hammer and Ho, I think um, my work also speaks to, you know, the studies on just African-Americans and communism from scholars like Mark Nason, mm -hmm. uh, Winston James, and others that largely attribute the rise of black socialism and communism to economic factors, to the migration of radical political thinkers from the Caribbean, um, and to rising Jim Crow. And all of those are important. But when we're looking at the origins of, of the origins and growth of the black radical tradition and um, black socialism and communism, we have to take seriously the impact of irreligion and the impact um, of religious doubt on pushing African-Americans to those political parties. Excellent. Excellent. And, you know, that's wonderful. And I'm glad that, you know, you're presenting this information and putting it out there because this type, well, these particular topics just in general have not necessarily been discussed on a wide scale in the black community, especially in the time period that you're talking about. And then one thing that I do like to talk about is the black renaissance and the black renaissance's contribution to free thought, if you will. Um, would you like to expound on that a little bit more, what you found? Yes, certainly. So um, the Harlem Renaissance is, you know, a literary and cultural movement that grew in large part out of the Great Migration, where we see approximately one and a half million 
uh, African Americans moving from um, the South, both rural, largely rural South, but some from the urban South as well, to northern cities like Detroit, Milwaukee, Chicago, uh, New York, and Philadelphia. Um, and for for a number of um, early participants in the Harlem Renaissance, they actually saw it as a way of um, being politically active and combating Jim Crow, combating segregation and racism in a sort of less overt manner um, than maybe some, you know, than more traditional forms of uh, kind of radical political organizing, right? Um, So the movement starts, the Harlem Renaissance starts roughly around um, 1919, 1920 or so, right? Um, And the reason this becomes such a a key moment for the history of black free thought is because it brings Mm -hmm. together a number of African Americans who maybe in their own sort of small southern communities or midwestern communities like Joplin, Missouri, in the case of Langston Hughes, or Eatonville, exactly. Florida, in the case of Zora Neale Hurston, these individuals would have been the only free thinker in those communities, right? They don't have anybody else to sort of share their skepticism and doubt with. They don't have anybody to sort of build community with around um, free thought and around skepticism. In fact, you know, Zora Neale Hurston talks about in her autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, that she pretty much had to lie throughout most of her childhood and lie about how much she loved God and lie that she believed in the sort of theological tenets of Christianity, right? So when these people get to Harlem or to Chicago um, or other big cities, now all all of a sudden they're encountering people with similar beliefs or non-beliefs, right? They're encountering people that they can sort of question them about their ideas, they can refine their own ideas, they can finally start to build community with like-minded people, right? So uh, A. Philip Randolph, for example, while, um, yes. most black were, while most black parliamites were going to churches, various churches on Sunday morning, he would host secular thinkers in, in his parlor, right, on Sunday mornings, and exactly. they would discuss they would, you know, talk riff on religion or political topics or um, things like that. But um, finally, you have a, a situation where you have like-minded people who are together for the first time and can sort of uh, refine and develop their uh, secularism and not necessarily feel totally ostracized like they would in a smaller southern community. So that's one really significant aspect. But another is um, the form of poetry, the form of the novel, right? These allow for more kind of creativity and more flexibility than maybe an essay you might write in a newspaper or, um, or something like that, or a more traditional sort of nonfiction um, form of writing. So you can explore a lot more. You can kind of play around uh, with ideas quite a bit more um, in a novel like Quicksand uh, than you can in other types of sources. So that, that becomes really important too. And we certainly see secular themes kind of cropping up in a lot of the poetry of the era as well exactly. as uh, novels from folks like uh, Nella Larson and Zora Neale Hurston. 
Excellent. That is fantastic. And, yes, I love A. Philip Randolph. When you, when you were in Chicago, did you get a chance to go to his house over in Pullman? It's a, it's a resource center now. I, I did not, no. I was mainly in the archive working on my new book project. So um, I, I didn't get over there, but maybe next time I'll be able to do that. Yes, excellent. Next time you come to Chicago, let me know. Even though I don't live in the city anymore, I would have come up there to see you at least buy you dinner and have a conversation yep. with you. But is there going to be a Black Free Thinkers Part 2? And what I mean by that is, you know, maybe talking more in depth about people like Langston Hughes, Richard Wright, James Baldwin, um, Asa Philip Randolph. I mean, just bringing it up from the era, just for continuing from the era that you began in to show people that, you know, there are some commonalities in this because one of the things that I always like to discuss and talk with people about is if you go back and you look at the black power movement and you look at the civil rights movement, there were many of us that participated, and that's one of the reasons why they did not consider both of those movements a religious movement. I had a professor correct yep. me and say that it was a people's movement as opposed to a secular movement. But I think it's extremely important that we get that information out there so that people understand. And even now, with the social movements that are taking place in this country, you see a lot more people talking talking about Marxism and socialism and communism, and and that message is starting to, you know, be more pervasive, if you will, which is why I think the work of Cedric Robinson is extremely important when he talks about black Marxism because Hubert Henry Harrison basically stated that the black community is the touchstone of America. So the condition of the black community, or the, I'm sorry, the condition of America is based on the condition of the black community. I had Jeffrey Perry on the show, and he talked about that more in depth. But, I mean, do you see any of the correlations between, you know, um, let's say non-conforming religious folks or irreligious folks? And Marxism, socialism, you know, basically through the filter of what um, Cedric Robinson had written. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I talked at length, um, and I'll, I'll address both questions. So one is one, the last one you asked is about Marxism and free thought, and then about a second volume. Um, I, I do have a chapter that, that there's a chapter specifically on socialism and communism. And one of the things I look at that Cedric Robinson um, certainly talks about in black Marxism is the influence of the African blood brotherhood. Right. Um, yeah. So this is an, this is an organization created um, in 1919 or a little bit earlier um, was sort of an arm of and was working with the Communist Party uh, USA. It was sort of a it began as kind of a revolutionary nationalist organization, but was really aimed at promoting self determination um, uh, among African Americans and sort of building up black culture. Um, and the African Blood Brotherhood published a, a newspaper called The Crusader. Um, and yep. in that in that publication, you actually see a number of articles um, and essays and opinion pieces that are highly critical um, of Christianity. Right, Richard B. Moore mm -hmm. was another was another of these Caribbean immigrants who um, was a part of the African Blood Brotherhood. Uh, Cyril Briggs 
uh, was the leader uh, of uh, one of the leaders of the ABB um, and also was the editor of the Crusader. And so you see the Crusader at times functioning as something of a free thought publication. And, and a number exactly. of articles very clearly tie together uh, the view that Christianity and capitalism are working hand in hand to oppress African-Americans in the United States and to advance colonialism and imperialism of African peoples abroad, right? So, um, yeah, I, I do go into depth in, on sort of those connections uh, in the book, and the final chapter actually does end by exploring the influence of secular thinkers in the civil rights and black power movements of the 1960s. So I look at sort of the uh, the evolution of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee from a Christian organization to one that uh, promoted black power, especially after James Foreman, the black atheist, uh, took over as executive uh, director uh, around 1964. Yeah. And then from there, I sort of go into a few different um, a few, few different avenues, the creation of the Black Panther Party and how uh, the 10-point platform contained a few different sort of humanist perspectives, how Huey Newton himself noted that yes. the central or the staple program of the Black Panthers, their free breakfast program for children, was designed as was sort of a humanist endeavor designed to get people exactly. to take control over their own situations and not necessarily look to the divine or God to do something for them, right? So a number of um, aspects of the Black Panther Party were specifically sort of designed and envisioned as uh, sort of humanist endeavors that people would sort of work together with and help to forward uh, the development of the black community and the causes of social justice through the um, means of human beings, right, through the actions of human beings. So the book ends pretty much right around the time that the Black Panther Party starts to kind of dissolve, right? Uh, the book ends around mm -hmm. 1975 with a brief afterward uh, tracing the history of black free thought from 1975 up to the present. But I say brief, it's, it's only about 10 pages. Um, so volume two will basically take that 10-page afterward and kind of blow it up into a book. And right now, Excellent. just in some of the early research that I've done, um, one of the key themes of Volume 2 is going to be the institutionalization of black free thought, right, with African Americans for Humanism and black nonbelievers, but also, you know, the, the sort of growing spread of black free thought in popular culture, on radio shows like this, right, throughout social Thank media, you. the creation of blogs and stuff like that. All of that is going to be a really sort of big part um, of volume two. So you can expect a call from me to set up a one or two hour interview to talk about your experiences in the movement and why you're doing what you're doing and and all of that. I'd love to sort of feature you um, in, in the book more prominently. <clears throat> Excellent. I'll do you one better. When you're ready to do that, I'll come and visit. So how about that? Okay, and then we Wonderful. can just do that live.
Yes, because I plan on doing a documentary, and it's, it's, it's going to be fantastic, and I'll talk to you about that later. But there is a gentleman by the name of Frank Chapman. He was part of the Black Panther movement. He was based in New mm-hmm. York, but he's now in Chicago. His book just came out. I'm going to pass you along his information because I think it's important that you incorporate him into that story as well. And I've okay. seen him as well as Angela Davis um, in a couple, basically in about another week or so. And I'll see if I can get her contact information so that you can reach out because um, okay. I think that's yeah. very important to include her because I see you included Elaine Brown, and I got a chance to meet Elaine at the Black Panthers Party 50th anniversary in Oakland a few years ago. And these people mm-hmm. are down to earth. They'll sit there. They'll talk with you. So I'm just, like, really excited. And knowing that there's going to be a volume two, I just love these conversations. You have no idea how happy this makes me feel and and excited about the future because even within the Black Lives Matter movement, and I was um, an activist working with them as well when I lived in Chicago, and basically there were a lot of black atheists, non-believers, humanists, all yeah. throughout that movement, a lot of people. So there are a few mm-hmm. people's names I'm going to give you, like Aislinn Pulley out of Chicago. She's the co-founder of the Chicago group. It's a number of people, and I just want to make sure they are not left out of the conversation. What Chicago has achieved is pivotal. They received reparations for the people or the black people that were beaten by John Burge in the Chicago Police Department. So they are the only city in this entire country that has received reparations, and the state of Illinois is working on the wealth equity program. Now, They've outpriced the black and brown people, but, you know, they have people like me out here that's trying to advocate and ask questions and put some more pressure on um, Governor Pritzker. But, um, man, this is great. This is great. Um, Out of curiosity, did you get a chance to talk about negritude in any form in this book? No, I I, I did keep it really honed in on on African-Americans and developments within the country. So um, there's maybe one or two times where I I talked about, like, Claude McKay, for example, in in discussing how he came to his free thought. Um, His secularism developed while he was in Jamaica and while he went to live with his older brother, Theo. Uh, when he was like 12 or 13 years old, and Theo was already a socialist and agnostic. Um, so I, I do talk about Claude McKay's experiences there, but for the most part, I kept it. I kept the discussion sort of focused on African Americans, just because uh, it's sort of once you sort of open that Pandora's box, it's like, all right, well, you talked about right. Negro too, then you got to talk about all of these other things, you know. Um, and, and then exactly. you get sort of open yourself up to charges of leaving out all these other important people. So if I sort of limit it right from the start, um, then I could I could just be very clear. This is what it's about. And then maybe in a third volume, I expand it to sort of Black Atlantic free thought or something like that. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So yes, don't forget about Chicago. They had their own black renaissance over there in the Bronzeville area. A lot of rich history there with people. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just it's been amazing. But you know, this was needed. So I want to tell you thank you myself. 
because, you know, um, it's introduced some new people that I had no idea existed. So that makes me happy because it, it challenges me, and I can be a real sponge when it comes to these things. And so don't be surprised when I start reaching out and asking you questions or we have you back on the show. And we can expound yeah. even more if I get a chance to really tear into the book. But I just wanted to congratulate you and let you know that you are definitely a friend of the show. And we will continue to support you and to um, promote you and your work. And I just want you to know that I do appreciate you. And I'm, I'm happy that I found you. I don't know how I found you, but I did. And I'm like, wait a minute, this guy is great. Come over here and talk to us. We need to talk to you. It was, it was probably from an AIHS blog post. <laughs> I bet exactly. you it was AIHS. Exactly. Those posts make it everywhere, and I, I've had a few posts there on on free on Black Free Thought and secularism. So I bet you that was it. That that was it exactly. And then I'm going to have to reach out to Ben Alvers because he did a post on there that um, was phenomenal, and I would like to expound on that. But what what I'll say today is, you know, we're going to close this out because I know you have busy life going on there, but um, do you mind just giving us some words of encouragement in regards to those of us that are out here? And I always try to revolve my show around the notion that there are a lot of people who cannot be out. Like you said, you know, Zora Neale Hurston had to lie about. There are a lot of people now that, you know, are not able to be out, and when they see us, they're happy because they know that there is nothing wrong with them, that there are other people that believe that way. And I always want to send something nice, a nice message to them. What would you say to them today? Well, I'll, I'll say if, if you consider some of the individuals that we've talked about in our conversation today, and if you think about some of the people that are in my book, right, in all four chapters, from Frederick Douglass and William Wells Brown in the first chapter um, to uh, Elaine Locke, the father of the Harlem Renaissance, yeah. Langston Hughes, Nella Larson, Zora Neale Hurston, Claude McKay to um, Richard Wright in the next chapter, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, and then on to, to Huey Newton and to James Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry in the fourth chapter, finally looking at folks like Alice Walker, that the yes. history of black free thought in the United States includes the key um, and the foremost intellectuals, political activists, thinkers um, that we have in African-American history, right? These aren't, these aren't obscure people. These are the folks that we read in junior high school and high school. We don't necessarily hear a lot about their secularism. But if you are a black freethinker today, and if you are a black religious skeptic, while it might feel isolating and while you might feel ostracized, you're actually part of a very long, rich, and vibrant tradition of African Americans who did not adhere to Christianity or any other theistic religion, yet made profoundly important contributions to African-American culture and to American life uh, more broadly. So take uh, encouragement from, from that history and to know that you are part of that uh, really vibrant and important intellectual tradition. 
that is phenomenal. That's fantastic. Thank you for those words of encouragement. And as I say to the listening audience, you're not alone. There are many of us out here. You know, reach out to Dr. Cameron, purchase his book, purchase it as gifts for friends like I've done. And I'm just looking, I'm so looking forward to the work that comes from this, the additional volumes. And if there's everything, anything you ever need, Dr. Cameron, please feel free to reach out, and we will do our very best to work with you and to help you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So, again, this is Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. You're not alone. I, I haven't forgotten about you guys. We haven't forgotten about you, and you know, you take that journey, you know, the best way that you can and the best way that you know how. So thank you, and I look forward to hearing from you guys on Sunday. And, again, Black Free Thinkers, this is Kim, Dr. Cameron. Thank you, and you all enjoy the rest of your day. Take care now. Bye-bye.